Bible to chapter 25 in Genesis. We're going to be looking at the last half of this chapter, starting in verse 19. You know I'm a movie guy, so unabashedly, I, I love movies with a plan. I've told you before I like submarine movies, and that's kind of weird, but I like movies with a plan, too, that are centered around a plan. And I was thinking in my office this past week, what are some of the movies that I love centered around a plan? How about The Great Train Robbery? It's a great plan movie. The Thomas Crown Affair. The Great Escape. The Dirty Dozen. Remember how they had to learn the plan from a rhyme? They rhymed their way through the plan. Ocean's Eleven is a great one, a recent one, right? But for me, the granddaddy of them all is The Sting. I love The Sting. I remember when I went to see it, I was, had to have been seven or eight years old. I went to the theater. And, and I remember coming out, and I was totally confused. Totally confused. Didn't understand it at all. It wasn't until years later, it was before VCR, so you couldn't go rent it. You had to wait for it to come on TV. Do you remember those days? You had to wait for the movie to come on TV. Years later, I watched it as probably a teenager or some early 20s, and I got it. I understood the plan from the beginning. As we said, from the beginning of this sermon series, God has a plan. God has a plan in mind. From the very beginning of Genesis, a plan to redeem his people, a plan to bring his children back into relationship with him, right? A plan to defeat Satan, right from the very beginning. A plan to break the curse and power of sin, as we were hearing back in Sunday school. A plan to bring forth the snake crusher. That's the plan. And God doesn't want us to be confused. He doesn't want us to leave reading our scriptures going, I just don't get it, like I did from the sting. So along the way, he chooses to give us structures. He chooses to give us patterns. He chooses to give us little snippets of people's lives in order to give us clues about his grand plan. And that's what we have before us today. A short narrative about the birth of the third generation in the line of promise. The birth of Isaac and Jacob. And through this story, we're given two massive insights about how God's plan is going to work its way out. So look with me at verse 19 in chapter 25. God's word says, these are the generations of Isaac. Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Armenian, of Paddan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Armenian, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife, because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, if, this, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? 
So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she, when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau saw, said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I'm exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die of what use is a birthright to me. Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and lentil soup, and he ate and drank and rose and went this his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. I think the first thing we notice, we have to notice in this text is the very first line. These are the generations of We've seen this before, seven times before. This is another break in Genesis. This is another separate section. We've seen it back in chapter 2 with the generations of the heaven and earth. And in chapter 5 with the generations of Adam. In chapter 6 with the generations of Noah. And in chapter 10 with the sons of Noah. In chapter 11 with Shem and his generations. And in chapter 12, with the Abraham generations of Abraham. We've seen it as recently. You can look back so like six verses, and you can see it back up in, in verse 12. These are the generations of Ishmael, a very short section, but calling out Ishmael as a separate generation. And now we're into a big change because for the next 10 chapters, we're going to be dealing with and talking about and looking at the generations of Isaac, which really the story centers on not Isaac, but his son, Jacob. And here we read about his birth and early life. And God wants us to know two things about his plan of redemption through these short verses. And the first one is, that his plan is not accomplished by human effort. God's plan is not accomplished through human effort. We see this highlighted in verses 19, 20, and 21 in our text. There we have Isaac and Rebekah struggling to have a child for 20 years. According to verse 28, they were born when, when Isaac was 60. And yet... He got married when he was 40, so 20 years. Imagine how hard that must have been. Not just culturally, but being told 
by his father that you, through you, all nations are going to be blessed. Through your line, the Messiah is going to come. And yet for 20 years, no child, no child. Imagine how hard that must have been. But Isaac was a faithful man. And what did he do? He prayed. He prayed. I think it's really sweet how, the, how it says it here. It says, he prayed for his wife. Did you notice that? He wasn't praying for a son. I mean, he was, but he's, his heart broke for his wife. Because as you may or may not know, in that culture, having a child was everything for a woman. So he's praying for his wife. I think that's very sweet. We get a little insight into Isaac here. And we have to read this as Isaac just didn't get fed up after 20 years and started praying. He was praying continually, probably monthly, if not daily, for his wife. He did, and he, after many times of prayer, many years of prayer, God granted his prayer. Did you notice that in verse 21? After 20 years of praying, God granted. Interestingly, he didn't hedge his bets like his father with Hagar, did he? 20 years, he was faithful. He didn't say, well, it's not happening, let's go another route. He was faithful. Get another insight into who Isaac was there. He prayed and trusted, and the Lord granted his prayer. I think you should underline that, if you're a Bible underliner. Because God is giving us a massive clue into his plan. That blessing doesn't come through human effort. It requires an act of God. Have you ever just sat back and thought for a minute, okay, what is all this barrenness doing in the Bible? I mean, right out of the gate, the first three patriarchs have barren wives. Have you ever thought about that? You have Sarah, Rebecca, and then Rachel, all barren. What, what is God trying to teach us and them through that barrenness. God is emphasizing that the promise doesn't come through human effort. Think of other barren women in Scripture. I thought of Manoah's wife, we're not given her name, in Judges, who was barren, who finally gave birth to Samson, probably one of the greatest Old Testament Christ figures. You want to go read a, sto- a story that has Christ all over it? Read about the weak man, Samson. And yet, Manoah's wife was barren. I thought, I thought of Hannah. Right? Hannah was barren. And yet she prayed, and God gave her Samuel, the archetype of the prophet office. Yet she was barren. I thought of Elizabeth. Here, here she is supposed to give birth to the, the paver of the way for the Messiah, and she was barren. Why all this barrenness? What is God's purpose behind it? Is it just some bad writing? Is it just, you know, this repetitiveness? Well, let's, let's make that person barren again. 
No. Where God is trying to tell us something about his plan. When I went, I went kayaking this uh, week for the first time, very proud of me, kayaking, I know, I've been here 15 years, now, now you can judge me, uh, kayaking for the first time with uh, Deal Snyder, went down here to what is not called the Mill Pond, but it's called the uh, Causeway, and uh, we spent about an hour and a half out there, and we had time to talk and, and pray and and he was telling me about a little framed quote that he was given decades ago down in, in, um, at his last job. And he said, this is what it reads. Good morning. This is God. I will be handling all of your problems today. I will not need your help. Have a nice day. <laughs> and he says he gets up and he reads that every day. That's basically the message that God is telling us through the barrenness in the Bible. I, I don't need your help. I've got it. Yahweh wants to underscore the fact that he accomplishes his purpose. He does not need our help. The ultimate enheightening of this, of course, is Mary, right? He doesn't even need a father. I've got this. I will accomplish my plan. He doesn't need our help in order to bring blessing. And that challenges our hearts. Doesn't? Doesn't that challenge your hearts? God doesn't need our help. We are a people that are wired to say, I've got this. What can I do? Just tell me what to do. Give me six steps. That's the way we're wired. Yet God is saying over and over again, I don't need your help. Perhaps each one of us needs what Deal has on his wall each day and read that. I will take care of all your problems. I do not need your help. Because that's one of our biggest struggles is self-sufficiency. I was... uh, struck by a promotional mailing that went out to a fitness gym, which kind of says it all where our flesh is concerned. It was a promotional, and on the front it said, The Year of You. And here's what it said. Promotion for a gym. The new year is right around the corner, and you've either got to go go it on your own, or the year is going to own you. It's 100% your choice. It's in your hands. It's the first thing. Simply by taking all the responsibility and putting it on your shoulders, you become empowered. Next, you take that feeling of empowerment, of invincibility, the feeling you can run through a wall, and you take action. You take action like you've never taken action before. You become prolific. You become consistent. And you let no obstacle stand in your way no matter what. No more pity parties. No more whining about anything. And listen to this. You are in control of you. That is what the culture is constantly teaching us. It's all on your shoulders. You have to do this. You are responsible. 
You are in control. Now, sidebar, I'm not advocating for a passive life spiritually. That's not what I'm saying, and that's not what the Bible holds up. But Scripture does and is right here advocating for a new type of attitude that we have to have. An attitude of true dependence, of true reliance, an attitude of desperation for God. Desperation for God. The kind of desperation that Jesus talks about in John 15. Let me read it for you. He says this to his disciples in the upper room. Remain in me and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. And here is the, our gym advertisement. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Those are Christ's words. Do we really believe that? Apart from me, you can do nothing. Do we really believe that in our jobs? Do we really believe that when we think of finding a spouse? Do we really believe that when we think of going to college? Do we really believe that when we think of our marriage? When we think of our kids? Do we really believe that we cannot do anything apart from Christ? Or how about salvation? Do you believe that when it comes to your salvation? Our flesh encourages us to begin to believe that we can actually add something to what God has done. We talk of our decision to follow Christ. Let me ask you a simple question. Does that line up with John 15? Does that line up with the barrenness we see in Scripture? I love movies. Here's another one for you. The movie Hitch. You know the movie Hitch with, with uh, Will Smith? It's about he's, he teaches guys how to woo women. And he's teaching James, uh, Kevin James how to do a goodnight kiss. Have you seen this? This is great. He says, he says to, to Kevin James, you go 90% and stop. And you wait to see if she comes the other 10%. Is that how we view salvation? You know, God's done all this heavy lifting. He's done 90%. I'd give him 95%. But we have to do that 5%. Is that how we view salvation? Does God really need our help in order to bless Interestingly, Paul uses our very text that we're in, the very text we're in, to say exactly the opposite. Do you realize that? 
If you want to turn there, it's in Romans 9. I'm going to read a short section of the scripture there. But he's talking about God and his sovereign election of people. And he uses Jacob and Esau as an example. Starting in verse 10, he writes, When Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of our works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, and Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And look at verse 16. So it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. God's plan for salvation requires no human effort. Lee Eckloff tells a story about how he helped a friend save his neighbor's cat that was up a tree. He says, a year or two ago, my friend Linda, Linda's cat escaped. It was cold and rainy and the cat would not come down. Not for three days. The cat wasn't exactly lost. Linda knew exactly where it was, a good 20 feet up in a tree just outside her door. But the cat would not come down. So, another friend named Jim took a long extension ladder over to help and he called me. That cat probably hadn't eaten in three days. It was cold and scared, but Jim climbed the ladder and got up there. And the cat was not glad to see him. It was downright hostile, he writes. In fact, the only way Jim got the cat down was to put a towel over his head and pry the cat off the branch. Jim did all the rescuing. All the cat did was let go. Salvation is actually closer to that than we like to think. We hang on to the things that we think are important, don't we? We hang on to the things that we want. We hang on to the sins that bring us pleasure temporarily. And only when we finally let go that we're saved. Jesus does all the rescuing. All we do is let go. None of us are going to look to Jesus in the last day and remember our rescue and say, we made a good team, didn't we? Nobody's going to do that. This is perhaps hard. But it's wonderfully biblical. And you will only begin to embrace it by believing that God accomplishes his plan with no human effort. For a moment, just think of the fruit that that bears in your life. It bears the fruit of humility, doesn't it? Bears the fruit of a a John 15 type of desperation. Without you, I can do nothing. It drives you to Christ. It produces an understanding that we are weak and he is strong. 
And that brings us to our second point of our passage, and that is that God's plan is accomplished through weakness. God's plan is accomplished through weakness. This is the second aspect of God's plan that he wants us to be aware of. And through this passage, we see that brought to the foreground. Jacob is the line of promise. We're going to read that over the next ten chapters. He's the line. Yet it's surprising in at least three ways. First, he's not the natural choice. He's not the natural choice. If you look at verse 27, we see that Esau was the strong one. He was the vital one. He was vigorous. He was masculine. He was outgoing. He was outdoorsy. He was leading man material. While Jacob was quiet, kind of recessive, indoorsy, maybe even a mama's boy, the natural, obvious choice is not Jacob. As Griffin Thomas wrote, the order of nature is not necessarily the order of grace. Secondly, Jacob is not the cultural choice. So it's not the natural choice. It's not also the cultural choice. The rule of progenitor is that the firstborn gets the blessing. The firstborn gets the birthright, gets the lion's share of the inheritance. The firstborn was given a double portion of the inheritance. Why? So that he could keep the family together. It was his responsibility. He becomes the head of the family. If we look at verse 24, we see that Esau was firstborn. He was the cultural choice for the inheritance. He was the cultural choice for the promise of the, of the Messiah. But God prophesies in verse 23 that the older will serve the younger. Did you catch that? The older is going to serve the younger. The younger Jacob will be the head of the family. Not the firstborn, but the one born second. And we see how that happened in verses 29 through 34, how he stole the birthright, right? How he, it, kind of like extortion. Now, this isn't saying much about Esau, but it's saying a lot about Jacob. And that brings us to our third point. Jacob is not the moral choice either. He's not the moral choice. Jacob extorts Esau out of his birthright. I mean, we, we can go forward to chapter 27 and, and look and see how he deceived his very father out of the birthright. Later, he will trick his uncle Laban out of his money. Jacob is not the person we would choose to bring forth the Messiah. Jacob is not even a likable character if you really read it closely. Kent Hughes, the expositor, describes him as an opportunistic, cheating, ambitious, self-seeking, self-serving, grasping, scheming, heartless, exploitive, and a singularly unattractive individual. As we look at Jacob, he is not the spiritual choice. That's because we tend to look to the strong, don't we? We tend to look on the outside we look at, at the morally acceptable person. We say, that's the right person. That's the person that should be in church. 
is, is that person who keeps the law, when in fact it's the person who understands they don't keep the law that are members of Christ's body, who recognize that. But we tend to look at the culturally accepted. We look at the Sauls, don't we? That's the king. We look at the, first, at the Corinthian church's super apostles. They are the ones to lead. But God doesn't look at that. One of my heroes is Hudson Taylor, the pioneering missionary into China in the 19th century. And he was asked later in life why the Lord used him so greatly in China. You know what he said? God had to look for a man weak enough. He found me. That's how God's plan works. It's through weakness. Not through the culturally accepted, but through many times the culturally rejected. Not through the wise, but through the foolish. Not through the boasting and the brave, but by those who actually fear God. Not through the superior knowledge, but through simple faith in Christ. Not through strength, it's through weakness. That's how God's plan works in salvation. Listen to how Paul tells the Corinthians in his first chapter. And these are words, brothers and sisters, that we need to hear. Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. You know what God's plan is? It's to use weak old me and you. Weak, leaky, cracked vessels. Don't be deceived. The most powerful thing you can do, the most powerful thing you can do is lead a weak-looking life. Not to boast of what we have, but what we lack. Not to depend on our abilities, but to actually say, I'm helpless. Not to brag of our self-sufficiency, but to actually boast of our need. Not looking to our strength, but admitting our weakness. N.T. Wright put it this way, we live in a world full of people struggling to be, or at least appear to be, strong in order not to be weak. And we follow a gospel which says that when I am weak, then I am strong. And this gospel is the only thing that brings healing. Authentic salvation comes to those who say, I'm weak. I'm helpless. I'm desperate. I'm a sinner. I need forgiveness. I need rescuing. 
God's plan of salvation is accomplished through weakness. And isn't that ultimately what we see in, in Jesus? Is weakness. It's, it's a weak, weak story. I mean, just look at his, his lineage. It's full of unnatural, uncultural, immoral people. He was born of a cheater, Jacob. Rahab, the prostitute. Ruth, the Moabitess. David, the murderer-adulterer. Solomon, the polygamist. Manasseh, the child-sacrificer. Jesus' life rings of weakness. He was conceived out of wedlock. He's from a backwater town nobody really heard of, Nazareth. He was an uncredentialed, itinerant preacher. A friend to prostitutes and tax collectors. That's who he, he hung around with. No home. And in the end, no followers, even. And just look at Jesus' death. Beaten and spit upon. Mocked as a king with a thorn of crown of thorns. And hung naked to die on the cross like a common criminal. There's no life that, that screams weakness more than Jesus. And yet in that weakness, strength. Because if you are a person that says, I need forgiveness, I'm weak, I'm helpless, I'm desperate. In that weakness, you look to Jesus. You say, he lived the life I can't, the perfect life. And he took the penalty that I should take for my sin, death. And you trust Jesus that he took your penalty and that he will give you his righteousness. The promise is that's exactly what happens. And that's what we call a Christian. Someone who is weak and desperate enough to say, I need a rescuer. And it can't be me. I can't do it. But I know somebody who did. That's what it's like. That's what it means to call yourself a Christian. Weakness not strength. The quadriplegic Johnny Erickson Tata wrote about the last time she met Corey Tenboom towards the end of her life. She relieved each moment, she says, of my visit with Corey Tenboom, who by the time had been paralyzed by a stroke. So Corey Tenboom was paralyzed just like Johnny Erickson Tata. She writes, I recall how our eyes met as we were fed our cucumber sandwiches. Helpless and for the most part dependent, I felt our mutual weakness. Yet I'm certain neither of us had ever felt stronger. Excuse me. It makes me think of the cross of Christ, a symbol of weakness and humiliation, yet at the same time a symbol of victory and strength. For a wheelchair may confine a body that is wasting away, but no wheelchair can confine a soul, the soul that is inwardly renewed day by day. For paralyzed people can walk with the Lord, speechless people can talk with the Almighty, sightless people can see Jesus, deaf people can hear the word of God. And those like Corey 
their minds shadowy and obscure, can have the very mind of Christ. God's plan is accomplished through weakness. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your word. We cherish it, and we thank you for teaching us by it. In Jesus' name, amen.